Amen. So glad you're back with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. If you got your copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in 1 John today. And for the next several weeks as we go through this book of 1 John. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, no problem. We'll put them on the screen for you. Or we'd love to gift you with a copy on your way out. Uh, I hope you are thankful. That video was fantastic. I'm thankful they didn't give me subtitles. <laughs> I always wonder when you're watching reality TV and somebody with a real accent gets subtitles, what they react to that when they finally see the playback and they're like, wait, I speak English? And like, do you? Uh, I, I speak English uh, and yet I'm sure my friends like Mabano and others would appreciate subtitles as I preach who speaks English perfectly. And yet, do I though? You know, uh, so anyway, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. That thankfulness video deal is really fun. Uh, it's a little nerve-wracking in the moment, but it's an important thing to be doing. Making yourself stop and be thankful. It's difficult to do. It's not natural to do. It's essential to do. So we're going to model that for each other in this video segment. Um, again, nobody's like excited to go be on a video like that, but... You're helping to engage in the life of the church as we are thankful together. So please make uh, some time today to do that. First John, we have put a title on our preaching through the book of First John, the word certainty. And that's because it is essential to really know that you know this stuff is true. Christianity is not involved with little half measures. In general, the sacrifices that God calls us to, if you just read through Scripture and Jesus describes discipleship and what it's like to follow Him, He doesn't describe half measures. He doesn't describe percentages. He expects everything. And if you're going to have that kind of total commitment, if you're going to have that kind of absolute sacrifice, you have to have a level of certainty. Certainty that the things we believe are true. And you can find that. I think you can get to an intellectual certainty. I know that you can get to kind of a social certainty as you connect with other people that believe, but... We often aren't actually asking an intellectual question when we say, can I know? Can I be certain? We're usually asking something much more personal. Because to say that I know that these things are true, that's really only half of the situation. That's only half the battle. Really, it has a lot more to do with whether or not you are certain that you fit into this belief system. We talk about Jesus. We talk about what it is to follow someone who is perfect. We talk about the law of God that was given to us, showing us how to live life perfectly and how far we fail on that constantly. I helped a friend with that this week. We were talking through the gospel and I'm helping him think through it. I asked him about sin in his life. Have you ever sinned? And I think he heard that as like, um, what does the state of Utah consider your record? <laughs> He's like, well, I've only been caught for like. <laughs> so, you know, it, he had a different perspective on it. And so I was like, okay, I understand that. But do you know what the scripture says about 
about your disobedience to God. Do you know what the Bible considers to be your rebellion against God? Well, Jesus said the top two laws, you could take all of the Bible's laws and put them into two. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The active verb that encapsulates Christianity is love. Do you have love? Not just for your cat, Hank. Or for your friends, but true love for God. And true love for your neighbor, which Christ goes on to, uh, to describe as, define as, the Samaritan loving and considering his neighbor the Jew. I, I don't do that well, much less constantly. There are many of you who live pristine lives, lives that many people are impressed with and would love to copy and emulate. But on the inside, do you have love? I don't know. And if you have not love, have you ever for a moment actually been obedient to God? Boy, it's a really big deal to ask the question, are you certain, certain that you're His? You don't get some kind of a mark that shows you're his. There's no tattoo. There's no um, new defining feature on your face. There, the baptism is great, but your hair dries like. There's not like a thing you keep with you to show that you're his forever. Do you know? And if you're honest with yourself, do you even know that you want to be his every moment of every day? That kind of love. We need to gain certainty together. And 1 John, as a book, gives us several tests in order to see if we are His. What I want us to do over the next three weeks, especially, is focus in on these tests. Tests of love, tests of doctrine, and the one we're going to talk about today, the least popular, tests of obedience. John makes it clear that part of how you know that your His is your obedience to God. And then most of us say, well, then I must not be a Christian. Well, okay, let's think for a second and understand clearly what he says. We're going to kind of zoom around a little bit in part of chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, the way that John has organized the book. It's a little bit less like Paul with just one thought leading to another. He's got a mix of different ideas at different places. We're going to pull some of those together. But let's focus in for a moment on... 1 John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4, read a couple of verses, and then zoom to the end of the chapter. We'll also be looking at John 3 today, but 1 John chapter 2, let's read. It says in verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, I know God, I am his, but does not keep God's commandments, that person is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps God's word in that person, truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this, we may know that we are in him. So here's a identity statement followed by a test. By this test, we can know our identity, who we are before God, the judgment that he will have of us. Verse six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. How are we doing? You go to the end of the chapter, it says, and now little children abide in God. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, if you've been at Hope Church for any length of time, you know that we make hard distinctions between what is considered religion and what we consider the gospel. Or there is a dry, formulaic attempt at obedience or conformity to a standard that most people consider religion, meaning they have a God or a set of principles and they either do a great job of being like that set of principles or they do a poor job of being like those principles. And either way, they have to try and do what those then those principles prescribe for failing. And our contention from the teaching of Jesus and the words of Scripture is that Christianity is exactly the opposite of that. We say that we are saved by God's grace through faith, not of works. So then, what do we do with a book like 1 John who says you're going to have confidence that you're His if you're obedient? Do you see how that's strange? How do we resolve that tension? Because what John is saying is your obedience is going to give you certainty about your identity. What's he mean by that? Well, first thing he does not mean is sinlessness. Verse 1 of chapter 2, which we didn't read, but we read last week, says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. My little children, those that are followers of God... You see the pastor's heart as he's talking to them? He's writing to them so that they won't sin. He doesn't want them to sin. They don't want to sin. He's helping them to not sin. But then he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You're, you're, you're going to fail. You're going to screw up. If, if the definition of sin, which I laid out in the beginning of the sermon, the idea that you would have a total, absolute love of God and man all the time, if that's his standard, yeah, you're going to sin. John understands that, that that is going to be sin. He says in the first chapter, if anybody says he's without sin, he's a liar. First John is, is clear about our constraints. John himself would have been very clear about his own sin in his own life. He's not saying that to be sure that you're Christ, your obedience has to be perfect. He is saying, though, that there must be a habit or a practice in your life 
that shows that you've had a heart change because of what Jesus has done in your life. When he says this is a test of obedience, when we characterize his teaching as a test of obedience, what we don't mean is an entrance exam. I don't know if you had to go through this or not. You take the SCTs, the ACT, and you try to get into college. They just want to make sure that you can put two sentences together, that you're going to be smart enough to be one of their students, to maybe be allowed to have some of their scholarship money. You're taking, in a way, an entrance exam. Many jobs have an entrance exam. If you pass the exam, they will then, because of your passing the exam, confer on you the title of whatever. Mechanic. Electrician. Doctor. If you fail that test, they withhold that title. Sorry, bro. Your interest in this Field doesn't make you one of us. You must also have expertise in this field. That's an entrance exam. We think this is what he's saying Christianity has. You must be obedient. And then when you attain a level of obedience that is impressive enough, we'll give you the hat of Christian. No, not an entrance exam, more of a litmus test. Now, my, my knowledge of science is like uh, non-existent. But as I was a kid, at some point, we had to use litmus paper to test acidity or what's the other one? Yeah, but as an adjective. Alkalinity. Thank you, Mr. Reese. Right there, ready with it. Uh, acidity or alkalinity of a substance. And you dip the paper in and the paper turns blue or turns pink. That may be a pregnancy test. I think it's those colors, though. It's those colors. And one color says one thing, the other color says the other. The substance doesn't perform. The substance merely is. The test is just a way of identifying what the thing is. The little cup of whatever doesn't study. Doesn't work. It's not a base and it's hoping to one day be an acid. It's a litmus test. And the Bible gives us a couple of different ways to understand. Is this what I am or is this what I'm not? I think the Bible has a couple of different examples. We'll do one now and one in just a second. The idea is a seed produces a specific kind of fruit based on its identity. There is a guy named Smokin' Ed Curry who lives in South Carolina, I think. And he has made it his life's work to breed the hottest pepper in the world. Have you heard of him? It, treat yourself. Go to YouTube this afternoon and watch people try to eat a Carolina Reaper. Have you heard of that pepper before? If you haven't, you can come to my house. I've got some sauce that was made from Carolina Reapers, and you can have just a little bit. A Carolina Reaper is, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the hottest pepper in the world. And this guy, Smoking Ed Curry, made it his life's work. He used to be uh, sort of a, he really loved drugs. <laughs> and just being honest, he said this, uh, he just loved them and wanted to get his life together, but still wanted to feel a rush. And so he traded in a lot of like 
uh, chemical highs for a different chemical. And he just started eating like super, super, super hot food. And the pain in your mouth means your brain releases endorphins to try and like make you feel a little bit better. And there's a rush moment. And if you've ever eaten really spicy food, you may have felt that too. Uh, there's a guy that's here at Hope Church named Noah Say, and he and I, uh, I just had this idea in my head that wouldn't it be cool to do the most in the world of something, the highest peak, lowest depth, furthest run, whatever. The idea that we could, with one bite, eat the hottest pepper in the world. Everest in one bite. That's how I sold it to people, trying to get somebody else to do it with me. <laughs> And the only idiot that was willing to do it was Noah Say, because he lived in my basement. I think he thought he'd get evicted if he didn't do it. And we, uh, we ate him together, and Rachel filmed this. We didn't last that long. And this guy, Ed Curry, bred that pepper. And he's still on a pursuit of building hotter and hotter and hotter peppers. Now, watching a documentary about this guy and about the peppers that he makes, he is very clear that while he's hoping to breed new things and hotter and hotter peppers and hybrids of peppers with peppers, from the moment that the pepper produces the seed, that seed is what it is. From the moment that he takes that pepper seed and plants it in the ground and then hopes for a plant that will come up, he's not at that moment going to change that seed at all. The seed is the seed. It's only ever going to produce that pepper. And while he's waiting to see what that pepper will be and how hot it will be, he's waiting on something that's already been determined. You and I have a nature. The scripture is clear that we have a sinful nature at birth. It's not natural for us to submit to God and love for him and submit to love for one another. There's shadows in those things. It's not our nature. And yet, when we are in Christ, He gives us a new nature. It is in the nature of a lemon to produce more lemons. It is in the nature of an orange tree to only ever produce oranges. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that you will know a tree by its fruit. What John is saying about you and me is that our obedience is going to show what our nature is. Is it a nature that is changing into the conformity of Jesus? It says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's a practice. Your obedience will confirm your identity. And, this is also exciting, your obedience will come from your identity. It says in the first part of chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. He calls us that. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, if we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared... But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The way that this is describing it is that God has given us a new nature, calling himself our father. And that because of our new nature, our new identity, our behavior changes to follow him. We purify ourselves as 
He is pure. So the other great biblical understanding of this is adoption. Now, if you adopt a child as an infant, that child may have a different genetic makeup than you, but he will have an almost identical sort of social pattern as you. We know how this works. If I adopt a child from another country, and let's say that I adopt a child from France, that baby will not speak French, right? That would be really weird if that happens. If we went to France and brought back an infant, that baby will speak the mangled version of English that I speak, because that's what it'll learn. Only ever from the beginning, it will only know what I teach it. Now, adoption in the biblical time was often Roman adoption, meaning it was used as a way to secure succession of your power and property. So oftentimes you would go out and adopt somebody that you felt like was a young man that you wanted to carry on your name. That meant that this individual would already have a set of practices, already have a culture and a life and a language, and yet that person would be brought into your home, given your name, and over time take on your way of doing things. If you adopt somebody that's older, you do see that happen. The moment that adoption takes place, the moment that legally that child is yours, they may still have all the practices, all the culture, all the bad habits and good from their old life. But as you bring them into your home, as they spend time with you and get to know their new identity, their life will start to change. And this is what he tells us to do. It says in verse 28, And now, little children... Abide in him. Laugh at what he laughs at and laugh the way he laughs. That's how you know that people are highlies. They laugh like we laugh. And if you're a highly and you want to communicate that something was really funny, you'd like choke at the end of it. You laugh so hard. <laughs> That's what we do. It's like old smokers or really obese people. That's how we communicate that we really thought something was very funny. And it's a family thing. It's something that's passed on, not because of genetics, I don't think, but because culturally it's passed on. Do you understand that that's what God is saying he's doing with us? He's adopted you. He's bringing you close to him. And legally, that will never change. You're his. But your practice will change over time. This test of obedience is a way of confirming your identity your obedience before God comes from your identity. And your obedience to God will grant you confidence. It says in verse 28, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The idea is that Christ has come once. He's proclaimed. He lived ministry. He died as a sacrifice for our sin. And then he rose confirming his teaching. Then he ascends and his followers now by faith in him attain that understanding, that position before God. That's what we say salvation is. It is a faith-based transaction whereby you hand God all of your sin you're going to continue to do it, but every sin you've ever done or will do, you put before Him, and He takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on you. 
adopting you into his family. And yet, that first coming is going to be followed up at some point by a second coming. What this verse is saying is, your confidence to stand before him while firmly rooted in the gospel, your certainty that you can stand before him and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Your confidence in that moment should rest solely on your faith in Christ. And yet, it's also going to go up or down on a daily basis by how you abide in Him. And we all know that to be true. The Bible is saying that you have become a citizen of a different country while living in this country. Can you imagine doing that? I talked about adopting a kid from France. Let's go the other direction. Imagine that you somehow obtained French citizenship while living in Utah. And you begin to try and live as a French citizen in the country of the United States and the state of Utah. Good luck. I don't know that culturally France and our red-blooded Utahns fit together that well. But imagine somebody trying to do that. They've read about baguettes and they try and make them. They smoke cigarettes and wear striped shirts and little berets and they try to just be French. And it'll be cartoony. And it won't work that well. Their French will still be heavily accented with Utah. But they're slowly becoming French. And then to the degree that they commit themselves to that and live in that lifestyle, in that moment, when they walk into that country, <laughs> in that moment, and let's just throw away the analogy, but in that moment, when heaven reimposes itself on earth, and you've lived as a citizen of your new country. Poorly. Stupidly. Crudely. But genuinely? <laughs> You'll stand before him and be able to say, yes, finally. Teach me how it's really supposed to happen. You know I've been trying because I want it so bad. Because I want you so bad. So much so that I talk to you daily. I hang out with your people hoping to pick up tips to remember to be like how you want me to be. Not so that you'll love me, but because I've been melted by the love you have for me. Does that make any sense at all? Do you understand what 1 John is inviting you to? <laughs> you'll be like a child putting on a Halloween costume. When you get older and you put on Halloween costumes, you do it in order to be silly. Or maybe be a little sexy. I don't know. The Halloween stuff, you see it. But I'm saying you, you have other motives than the costume. But when you're a kid and you put on an Iron Man costume or a Moana outfit, you know you're not Moana, but you're putting that on because you love Moana. And in a way, it's a parody. You're not even close. You know, you're a white kid. You're not Moana. But there, there's an expression that you give in that way where you say to the world, this is what I love and this is what I want. Maybe I'm not there yet. That's what I want. This is what John's calling us to with our obedience. 
And you say to yourself, Ben, I don't know, man. My obedience is so shoddy. How could that ever provide certainty to me? Well, biblically, you do that in community. You do that in community. I got a text the other day where somebody asked me that. Do you see Jesus in my life? And because he was faithful and living in community, I was able to say to him, absolutely. Have certainty. You are a bum, but you are growing in the grace that God has given you. And that is evidence that you're his. You have to have community to do that. But I want you to be incentivized by this. Not to try harder or do differently, but to enjoy and experience the love that God has for you. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, please don't let us misconstrue this encouragement and advice from John. Please let us not say, okay, work harder, do more, dig deeper, but abide more. Enjoy more. Call us, Father, to the kind of passionate excitement and admiration that a child has of a cartoon character that they dress up as at Halloween, of the, of the way that a child who's been adopted into a new family begins to take on the aspects, the culture, the, the, the way of that family, Lord, please, so that we become more like you, not in order to impress you or somehow supplant you in pride, but to receive from you qualities of who you are because of our love for you, love out of response to your love for us. Please do that, Lord, for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen.